0: Hi, and welcome
1: to BroPod, where we talk to those that defy convention from the worlds of sports, media, finance, and politics. It has been a long time uh, since we had our last episode, but a lot has changed since we, since we had that 44th episode, I believe, or 45th. I'm not sure. I'll have to check. But beyond. That doesn't matter because it's a big day for BroPod. Um, you know, after our doing our last episode where we did it away from each other, I we said goodbye as 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 partners, I would say. Um, it got even tougher and it became even more uh conclusive, uh, our split because Kieran, you are now
0: show, man.
1: show the show the ring. Look at that. Oh, my god. God. Yeah. oh my god, oh my god.
2: Yeah. <laughs> That's the best way to mend a broken heart is to just get right back, get right back into a, a new love. So you left, and I had to, yeah, move
1: that's on. A, that's a nice way to put it. That's a nice way to put it. But it was a fantastic wedding. Uh yeah. We've we've obviously reflected, and we will not use this platform to expand even further. But all there needs to be said is it was a fantastic wedding, a fantastic ceremony, and 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 and. It's, an outstanding bride must be said so incredible Um, very nice
2: uh, one of us married one of us retired so
1: unofficially unofficially (laughs) unofficially keeping all options open my friend so we'll see we'll see but uh i think this uh i think this heavy body is on it uh, at it on its last uh on its last legs is that what you say
2: Mm -hmm. maybe Uh,
1: yeah. So um, unfortunately, I will not bless Scottish football anymore, or to the maybe, to the maybe for the bliss of others, depending on who you ask. But uh, it's been a ride in Scotland. It's been a very nice ride, but all good things must come to an end. But Scotland for three years, man, I'll, we lived together for three years. Mm-hmm. How it all came together for us uh, and the story we've had, and long may it continue, obviously. this being one of them but um yeah it was a fantastic three years with a lot of ups and a lot of downs we can say that much yeah exactly and what better way than to um have another guest on i guess i think that's uh that's our, our our therapy and our and our celebration so to speak
2: instead of saying you know Instead of admitting that we're missing each other, we just get another episode.
1: Then exactly, and right. like any other healthy male, we just go right. in denial. <laughs> so I guess we can present our guest, Kieran, because we have Colin Miller on, yeah. um, who 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 we came across on, on Twitter, um, a, a a journalist, a a, a football writer, um, who is for us rather enjoyable on Twitter in the sense that he's able to uh, rather rather succinctly. Contextualize the different things that go around the world, especially within the sports world, and in our approach to this episode, here we were going back and forth in terms of how we wanted to to approach it. And mm-hmm. I guess you can talk us through what we were thinking uh, with a guest like Colin.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, it's just, I mean, it's no no surprise that obviously we are very engaged and passionate about sport, football, all sides of it, and politics. Mm-hmm. And we would always be talking about everything going on. And time after time, I'd find, you know, we would find on Twitter coming across Collins kind of tweets and threads. And he, like you said, very good at contextualizing and summing up and giving a very honest, um, objective kind of overview of everything. Um and it's kind of on all you know, issues across the board. So we picked a handful that we felt were relevant and were most curious about. And it ranged from, you know, uh, Spanish football culture, La Liga, financial uh, regulations there, how that's comparing to other European leagues who aren't really, who are, you know, expressing the same interest and passion to uh, do more in financial regulation, but not actually doing anything about it. We then spoke about the kind of woke capitalism, which has been, you know, pretty present for the last maybe. And what is ex- and what explain
1: what what that is and why that was relevant for the for the for the sports dimension of it.
2: I think we we've, we've also seen it increasingly recently, and now it's really getting plainly obvious in sport, but it's. I mean, the best way to sum it up is when, you know, these corporations or clubs feel like they need to take a stance on everything, even though even when it's completely unrelated to their business and their, and, and and what they do. And it's to maybe buy them some social capital, buy them some goodwill, paint themselves as progressive. And but you know, simultaneously their ownership more uh, systems, or commercial dealings often uh, standing, you know, direct hypocrisy release kind of values that they say they're champion and you know, there's obviously been arguments and Colin touched on it, this has always kind of been you know, you know, present you know, it's a murky world of business, a murky world of sport and it's you know, money and profits and success kind of defeats all but it seems like we're at a stage where it's just s- like slapping the face mm-hmm. you don't care and it's almost like a simulation at times when you see the new Saudi ownership, the Sovereign Fund of Saudi Arabia, buying over Newcastle, a state which pretty much outlaws homosexuality. Then Newcastle tweeting, I think I'm pretty sure it was Newcastle, tweeting uh, congratulations to Jake Daniels and coming out, uh, the young Blackpool player, and they're just kind of like, genuinely feeling like you're in a simulation. So, like we said, we see all these things, Colin speaks very well on them, and we thought we'd just get in and explore them, and, yeah, that'd be getting it. So-
1: yeah. This is in serious engagement with, with pretty complex issues. Um, similar to the way Colin is negotiating or, sh- you know, trying to deliberate upon these issues, so do we. We are not mm-hmm. coming up with a magical, uh, a magical solution here. Um, I think we have to acknowledge the fact that it is murky, it's obscure, it's messy, the whole thing. Um, Messi, incidentally, being mentioned—poor joke. I realize that. Moving on, <laughs> and the it is—we are not trying to take a moral superior position here. I think it's just important to explore it and discuss it because one, for one, it, it informs; it informs hopefully the the audience we have. But two, it's also a way for us to try to articulate what what is around us. And I understand yeah. it's difficult for us. I don't see. For example, football players is as culpable as the ones that are in the front office. I think players make certain decisions, right? And it will be merely football related. And should they use that as an excuse? I think that's acceptable for players to do that. And I don't think they should be as liable, nor should fans be. I think they are more so a a, a symptom or a consequence of the decisions being made at the very top. So understand there are such nuances um, within this, right? But so it is. It is tough, um, and but it's invalid when La Liga make a complaint to PSG about PSG to UEFA, and they report some losses here that are, you know, out. Like we mentioned, Colin mentioned in the in the pod is you become, you know, you don't have any relationship to these numbers. But there's so much. They've lost so so much money, right? And then you, it doesn't really matter, right? It's just like oh, there's so much debt, and obviously that's. In this case, it's a state-run ownership where it kind of inflates the market, and 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 so it is. So then, his question is: Is it better to be unregulated and then let the money free flow? Well, for these clubs, it might be because they can carry those losses. For most clubs, they can't. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a lot. It's a lot to to undertake. We try to. We wish we could have touched upon more, mm-hmm. um, but uh, we keep our restriction in an hour. And so we, uh, yeah, well, I guess it's all for us to carry crack on with this, with this episode. And mm-hmm. we'd love to hear what other people think as well, because um, we, well, we have gathered more knowledge, but we are none the wiser in that sense about what to do.
2: You have the nail on the head in terms of, we are just exploring and we don't necessarily have the answers or the solutions, but, and there is definitely a, you know, overwhelming feeling of helplessness, but the start is to be informed and that's essentially what we're trying to do here. And there was no better man than Colin on a lot of these issues to help inform us and yeah, dive into them.
1: Exactly, exactly. We'll let the we'll let uh, you guys uh, finally listen to other voices than our, ourselves for the most part. So um, join us after the break for our chats with Colin Miller. And this podcast is sponsored by Customs by Lisa, it was formerly known as Pimp Society, has now changed name. It is the place where you can hand paint, you can customize, accessorize uh, with various clothing. Um, Find them on uh, still on Instagram for now, Customs by Lisa, and see all the very, very fine uh, different uh, clothings, purses, shoes you can get customized, unique to you. Now to our chat with Colin Miller. We are delighted to welcome Colin Miller on the show. And Colin, we have presented you in our intro, um, and you are obviously a journalist, a football writer, um, and you also written a book um, on the the one of the hottest rivalries rivalries in sports uh, in sports or in football um, between Sevilla and Real Betis. And I'd like to go off that and start off with the La Liga. And I saw we were stalking our guest Twitters as, as we do. And you have some incredibly good content and why we wanted to have you on the show. But then I saw that La Liga has the least minutes played of the 90 minutes. They have the least goals scored and the most yellows of the top five leagues. What does this say about La Liga and with regards to where it was and, and what it's
0: now like and where it is headed? It's, yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting point, isn't it? I um I sort of stumbled upon that. And it, it's been something it's been something that has that, that been sort of known about for a while, this sort of change in Spanish football, the playing culture, because I think people who don't watch Spanish football have this sort of idea, this sort of um you know, it's all tiki-taki. It's all like these uh, these teams who are based off the sort of Pep Guardiola things and like sort of miniature versions of that. And, they, you know, these are teams who don't like physical confrontation. You know, they don't really play with any intensity. And it's just all sort of ball possession. And it actually, it couldn't be further from the truth, the way things are at the minute. Um, you know, La Liga matches are intense. They're very physical. Um, teams are, teams are very streetwise, which I think has always been the case. But there is there is a high level of cynicism, I think, um Within the, within the teams of La Liga, I think maybe a, a key reason for that has been the success of the Ego Simeone and Atletico Madrid, whereby you have a team who, and a club who who weren't Real Madrid and weren't Barcelona, didn't have those resources, weren't able to weren't able to play the way they did, but but, but sort of created this own identity of their own, whereby. And in Spanish, you have to have this verb to suffer, and it's like this. You know, it's, it's seen as this great positive for a team. You know, if you can suffer in a match, you know, you know, you know how to how to withstand attacks. You know how to absorb pressure, and then you know how to hurt your opponent in those sort of key moments that it matters. And I think, I think in a very basic sense, that's what a lot of teams have, have based themselves off. And I mean, I remember, I remember when Rafael Varane signed for Manchester United a year ago. Uh, I can't even remember who it was. I think it might have been Rio Ferdinand, said you know. France, wonderful defender, but he's going to have to learn how to defend against crosses in the Premier League. And I was like, there's no way there can be that much of a difference in reality. And I looked it up, and it was actually, Real you know, Madrid had faced more crosses in La Liga than United had in the Premier League. I think there's a variety of reasons behind that. Obviously, the Premier League has this influx of you know coaches from all around the world, whereas if you look at La Liga, 17 or 18, if not more, of those managers and coaching staff are predominantly Spanish. So they're all coming from a sort of similar school of thought. Whereas the Premier League is always, always evolving in terms of styles of play they're, they're successful. and so that Obviously, Jürgen Klopp, Pep Guardiola are coming in, all these different influences. But Spain has Spain's been a bit, more, a bit more streamlined. And again, it's interesting to see the fact that despite that, that sounds like a, like a majority, that sounds like you know, this is a league that's struggling, yet, yet they still manage to pull off results in European football, where they go real Villarreal this season, um, obviously won in the League season before that, to be successes over the years. You know, you always have these Spanish clubs who are, you know, uh, quote-unquote smaller clubs, but doing exceptionally well, punching above their weight. Maybe that's just because, in the sense that maybe maybe what they do just has a particular effect within European football that isn't present in the Premier League or in the Bundesliga, which are very well organised, very well structured. And you can see, you can see the coaching that has an effect on the players. Like all the players know exactly what their job is within the team, and that helps in those types of games. I'm not 100 percent sure, but yes, yeah, Spanish football's gone through, gone through changes on and off the pitch, um, certainly in the past number of years. And yeah, I mean, those are those are problems. You know, you don't want to be the league that has the yellow cards. You don't want to be the league that has the least in play time. Yeah, the reverse of that is, you know, that's that's the predominant a dominant coaching style at the minute, but these things always evolve and it evolves back again. It must be interesting to see how quickly that
1: hmm Well, in attempts to, uh, modernize the league, so to speak, or or at least the very least bring it on a path to more sustainable growth. There has been a deal when principal agreed with the CVC, the private equity firm right, for them to buy a 10% uh, stake of their commercial rights, um, which has faced a bit of backlash from Real Madrid, Barcelona, and Bilbao, who have countered that with their own project, project sustainability. But this is essentially an attempt to rebuild these teams' fraught business models, right? Over the last years, Barcelona perfectly exemplified by that in the way they've had to get rid of players, most notably in, in Messi. Now, the La Liga president Javier Tebas he is a, you know, he will he wants to instigate change for the better, of course. But how do you see these? Because there are certain spending controls being initiated. There are certain grants, or sorry, loans being given to these clubs that they have to repay, but they have nothing to do with player recruitment. It's more so in terms of improving the overall infrastructure. Is this a sign of what should be to come or something that UEFA should instigate? Or is it, as a matter of fact, actually uh, hindering growth? How, how do you see that, Colin?
0: Um, in terms of the CVC deal, um, it's something that and all, all these financial deals which, which include loans and certain periods of time to pay it back and you're selling off essentially part of your own growth for this sort of short term injection of cash it's difficult to really get your head around the full implications either way um, I, think, I think that's difficult for anyone who doesn't really have that financial background and it's certainly, it's certainly true for me but what I would say is that I'm suspicious of of that in the sense that as you sort of alluded to there, this this is a deal that, that naturally hinders long-term growth. This is a deal that, that ties the club to the fortunes of the league, yet has essentially sold off a percentage of what it what it can earn for this lump sum, lump sum payment. Now, of course, it, it it seems to be a bit a beneficial point of this that you know this is going to be going into facilities, this is going to be going into the clubs to, to make themselves sustainable. And you could you could argue, of course. That this gives them the breathing space to get their structures right, which allows them to, to sort of, sort of build more finance to, to get more investment, and then to sort of write off the losses that they'll have in this deal. So it's going to be interesting to see how that pans out. In terms of La Liga, in terms of La Liga's sort of spending controls, it's I think this is generally a, a big, big positive, but with caveats. Like like everything in this will have caveats because because La Liga essentially Spanish clubs. Uh, in 2007, certainly after the financial crash, a lot of their a lot of their funding and a lot of their creditors tied, it's tied up with the banks. Whenever the banks collapsed, these clubs, all multiple clubs, multiple big clubs, you think in Real offer, you think in Deportivo La you two clubs you' who essentially should be, you know, by their sort of natural size should be competing in Europe. Yeah, in our language, and in the lower divisions. Coming within the brink of financial ruin, the same is true of Valencia, the same is true of Real Betis and, and multiple other clubs who are, who are on a similar par. They, they were clubs who essentially were not run uh, with a long-term view in mind and they were part of the Spanish football structure, which which I think structurally has historically um, benefited Barcelona and Real Madrid because those are those are the two big clubs, those are the two clubs that can really sort of transcend Spanish football. And I think for a long time, prior to the Javier Cabas administration coming in in La Liga, um, Spanish football in La Liga and Spanish FA prioritised the growth of, of those major, major clubs at the expense, I think, of, of, of the rest. And essentially, they were marketing themselves on Madrid, Barcelona, Classico, Messi, Ronaldo. Yeah, all the other clubs were struggling. And that is something that has, has been holding Spanish football back for a long time. And I think... It, Tabas, and uh, he's a character who is not without his, um, <laughs> he's not without his drawbacks, so to speak, um, in terms of in terms of how he, how I think he views football and how, he, how his approach to things isn't always isn't always beneficial. But I think I think in this sense, La Liga have got it right because what La Liga have done is to think like, right. A lot of these clubs, especially those clubs, a lot of clubs like Gerona and like Eibar, who's sort of come into the top flight in recent years, you I know, mean, these are these are clubs who only get five or six thousand fans in a match day. I mean this would be less than a lot of clubs in the Scottish top flight like would get. So this 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 is a case whereby these clubs don't really have the, the infrastructure to to grow naturally quickly enough to make themselves competitive at that level. So what La Liga did was it's like right what what we're going to do, our approach is going to be this umbrella term whereby all the clubs are going to be under under us and we are going to sort of negotiate on their behalf for the betterment of these clubs and sort of dry everybody up as a whole, so to speak. Um, and again you, you can question that in individual cases but I think a lot of clubs are supportive of it I think I think most fans are supportive of it but again you have the questions of Lionel Messi left Barcelona uh, last summer and Barcelona have been a basket case financially for years they were allowed to, to run up over a, a billion uh, euros in debt a lot of that was short term debt so it wasn't just you know I you know, that—that's that, the sort of debt levels that Tottenham Hotspur are in, but it's financed over twenty or thirty years. Barcelona is supposed to be repaid within the next two or three seasons, and it—it it, it just couldn't do that. It was, it was being run without any any thought process. So there, there is, there is the argument that those structures are needed for clubs to become financially sustainable, and the the the, the counter argument that would be, well, is it holding them back financially? And you kind of think it's holding them back from spending more, but, but it but it's, but it's, would be spending more money that they can't sustain, that they can't control in the long term. And that would, that would be a damaging way to run a club. I think if you're looking at why La Liga or, or, or Serie A or the Bundesliga or Liga, probably the, the best examples, compared to the Premier League, it's because of the TV deal. The Premier League essentially has a TV deal that, that blows the rest out of the water. So all the Premier League clubs have income streams that nobody else, or clubs who are essentially backed by by nation states can match. So you, you have you have a situation where by clubs, and this is just off top my head, a club like Aston Villa, who finished what, 13th or 14th in the Premier League, all of a sudden becomes an attractive destination for a star of Sevilla or for a primary transfer target of Athletic in the bridge because they can afford to do it. They can they can afford to to attract these players here. They can afford to do the transfer fees, the wages and everything else. So again, the Premier League is in its own bubble. Is that sustainable? It's, it's difficult to say but at, at the minute that that's where football finds itself and La liga is desperate to, to sort of pull itself up to the Premier League level although obviously that, that isn't something that in the short term is going to happen economically.
1: no it, it, but it is and it is it is a predicament in sorts because in many ways uh, La liga had they filed a complaint over the mbappe transfer mbappe who signed an, an insane contract for for PSG in liga. Um, calling it scandalous and calling for effort to do more, which I agree because the FIFA financial fair play rules went out the window. There is none. And some might say that La Liga spending controls are going beyond that, but it is a valid predicament because I think in in theory and idea it's it's very good. I would be curious to see how it goes long-term granted it needs given time, but then also they will say uh, likes of Javier Tebas will say will be more attractive for broadcasters. But of course, put those regulations in and make it harder for, for the smaller teams to be competitive as it restricts the way they can acquire players. Uh, if you don't have the star power, you don't necessarily have the leverage towards these broadcasters either, right? So it's, it's a tough one and all the dynamics that go into it to see how it goes, because ultimately this, this needs to be given time. And in a very short term minded business, it would be curious how that, how that
0: unfolds. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a really good point because whenever Lionel Messi switched parts for PSG, all of a sudden you have a spike in interest in Liga. Um, so not not because of Liga, not because of the other clubs, but because of Messi, because of PSG, because of the sort of star attraction, and even even the line of work that, that I work in. I mean, you know, I work in online media and knowing what what sort of stories resonate with with, with internet audiences, with with sort of with a sort of fandom maybe fans who are aged really anywhere from their teenage years and their mid-30s and, and it's not it's not clubs it's not it's not individual matches it's 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 the star names it's the player names and i think that's something that is that has really increased in football in recent years i think this is this is like a, a phenomenon you kind of get a little bit from american sports especially the nba or you know, even the language of you know, the mvp of, of, of this team and I'm I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that because because basketball is what five players a team and you know these stars who just make the difference in a game. Football is much more team dynamic. But even setting that aside, that 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 is that is essentially what what you were saying is the counterpoint to to La Liga is that you know if you can't attract the star players, you're not going to get get the widespread attention. And I think I think that's truly an expense. The opposite way of looking at this is that whenever PSG signed Messi, they had obviously that summer signed Sergio Ramos, uh, Donnarumma. Uh, Wijnaldum, you know, Mendes, Ashraf McKinney, you know, just, just this ridiculous cast of, of, of almost superstar players. And obviously you already have Mbappe and Neymar. This, the year, the season before uh, they signed Messi, that season, the PSG wage bill as a club exceeded that of the bottom 14 teams in Liga combined. So they essentially had a wage bill that was more than 14 other clubs in their own league. That was before they signed the highest earning player in world football. Before they signed the Ramos and all the rest, and you kind of think there has always been this inequality in football, but there has never been such a, a barbaric level of, of difference. And you kind of think, that, well, that's one thing. But you just said there that you know PSG are running up these huge losses, this, you know, these huge debts. But it's, it's like it doesn't really matter. You mm-hmm. know, like none of this, none of this stuff seems to matter. Like as as, a, as an average fan you kind of look at this and be like well there isn't financial fair play doesn't really exist it, it exists in that league because they they enforce it within their own league structures in terms of registered players but it doesn't exist anywhere else mm-hmm. and again you're talking about sustainability is this going to be something that they sort of further down the line is going to come back and, and, and invite the, these clubs or these leagues who don't who enforce that and at the end of the day you know yeah people be interested in Messi people be interested in PSG but I mean Messi's 34 years old. I mean, how much longer is he going to be around? He's only got another year in Paris. What will happen after that? What will happen whenever he leaves? Will that, will those fans still be there? You know what's what's the sort of implications and the sort of long term effect of that? And even last year, I mean PSG just, you know, you kind of think, oh, they're having a bit of a rough patch of results. You know, is it, and then you look at the league table, it's like well, the 15 mm-hmm. or 16 points a year, and their fans are miserable. You know, the fact their fans are absolutely miserable. they walking away with the league. So I think, well, what,
1: yeah, or you can't well, build well, you point can't point. build culture you can't build culture, right? I mean, you or you cannot buy yourself towards it, right? And that's 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 the problem. But you know, when when money becomes the objective good in the eyes of you know of because fans want they want success and stuff, and then there's an interesting case here: will fans be too bored by that? But in a world where we we salute those who have money and we castigate those who don't and that becomes the overriding principle and we do not care where the money basically comes from for that's what it seems for me I'm because when i see these clubs and, and a matter of newcastle or or there are certain clubs that are espousing certain values or, or being criticized it seems as if they just for, they just expect us to to forget perhaps for example in the in the case of human rights or what they Given time enough, the fans will come around because ultimately, what they care about the, is, is is the game. I don't. It, it's hard to negotiate all those different uh, ideas or approaches because that's what the impression I get. Fans say, oh, we can get away with it." Given time enough.
0: Yeah, and there's two sort of two sort of conflicting ideas here. The first is that you know a lot of people will argue: well, football's always sort of been like this anyway. You know, you have these you have these clubs, you know, a lot of these clubs who, who come to, to, to be incredibly successful, incredibly huge levels of support, yeah, are funded by, by let's say, unsavoury individuals, or people who've got a little bit of a murky past, or, or people who carry out um, immoral business practices, and that, that's still the case, I mean, that's, that's the case throughout football, it's the case throughout, it's the case throughout the world economy, when we think about it, I mean, football is essentially mirroring what's going on in the world, and that that is true, then, when you have nation states, like, Qatar, like Saudi Arabia, coming in and, and buying these, I suppose they're cultural assets, aren't they? I mean, that's, that's what they do. I mean, if, you, if Saudi Arabian states coming in, or the, the PIF, which we're which, to which believe isn't, isn't linked to the Saudi Arabian states, coming in and buying Newcastle United, I mean, you're buying a huge fan base So you're buying essentially the support of one of England's major cities, a club who have got a lot of potential. As, and it's that, it's that sort of stripping away of of a cultural asset, and that that's that's the same throughout the UK. I mean, in terms of the UK approach, Premier League almost embodies that, doesn't it? It's this sort of like, this sort of like ultra capitalist approach where it's like, well, you know, as long as the money's coming in, like, it doesn't really matter. And I mean, I, I don't, I don't want, I don't want to pick on any individual commentators, but whenever, whenever that takeover deal went through, and the, the game against Tottenham was on um, Sky Sports, you know, it's this huge build-up to it and all this. I mean, maybe let this not get it. I get fans are excited, especially in the previous, the previous one in my gas I when we were talking about immoral business practices. You know, this is, this is a guy who, who ran the football club for all the wrong reasons and had a, you know, with, with what he runs sports wasn't maybe you know, a lot of people take issue with that. But, but, but setting that aside, you know, you've got, you've got a state coming in and a commentator is saying, you know, these fans are so happy because they've won the, the, the ownership lottery. And you sort of just think, well... Okay, I, I get I get the excitement of getting money, and sort of thinking, "Oh this is a little bit fun. You know, like our our team might be good again." But you can't. You I mean, you just can't set aside everything else. I mean, it's not. It's not even. It's not even the case that you know this is this is an a nation state in itself. I mean, I, I just don't think a nation state should should own football clubs. I mean, that's that's the principle. It doesn't matter if you're Saudi Arabia or a Western nation or wherever you're from. You, that just shouldn't be. That just shouldn't happen. You know, I, I always think there's a bigger like model of the 50 plus one voting rights in terms of what, what happens when a country. I think that should be widespread, but even setting that aside, you, can't, you just can't think, right, this is, this is a nation-state that, that carry, carries out systematic murders, that, 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 that is responsible for murdering um, Jamal Khashoggi, a, a journalist within, within recent years, that is hugely repressive to, to my, any sort of minority it doesn't follow the sort of conventional um sort of Sharia law that's in place within the country. All these things all these things are hugely problematic. And these these are hugely problematic in a world sense beyond football because Saudi Arabia obviously has a lot more um investments than just in a football club and, and a lot of a lot of fans or a lot of fans that I've seen on social media are very keen about this sort of water about you so, well, yeah so like why why are you so upset that about Newcastle but you'll use this this uh, this taxi service or whatever else that has like investment, like you know, they they partially invested. and like, well, this that. I mean, I'm uncomfortable with that, but that's relevant because what this is is, I mean, we hear this term a lot. I use this term a lot in sports watching, you know, just sort of using this image to normalize, to normalize a, a, a government or, or, or an issue's government and come in and being like, you know, don't don't talk about that. Talk about this. Talk, talk about what we're doing. Here instead, and that that's something that's very different. And it's not it's not just the case of football; it's the case of golf golf at the minute. Uh, uh, for, Formula One, boxing, all these all these sports are are being almost siphoned off in, in many ways. And, and and it's interesting because those sports are different from football in the sense that the guys who are signing up to that I mean they're are the individual sports players who are taking taking contracts almost directly from from those missions, whereas in football, it's 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 the club, and by the club, we're not talking about the supporters, we're not talking about the people who, who manage the club. We're talking about the suits, you know, the the executives, the people that, that nobody really sees, nobody really knows about. And the Newcastle takeover as well, what well, went beyond that actually, because if you look at, at the sort of breakdown of what happened, there was very much a, a political interest within the British government to get that deal done. Boris Johnson, even in Parliament, you know, he's, he's raising the question of why has this not been sanctioned yet? Why, why the Premier League blocking this deal? And so it's sort of putting put his fitness um, put this in somewhere where, where it really shouldn't have been. And then you and then you have the, the leaked, leaked emails that, that had come in from the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia to Boris Johnson to pressurise the government. And then Jamie Rubin being, being promoted to the Newcastle board, somebody who funded Boris Johnson's London Mayoral campaign before he um, became Prime Minister. So you have all, all of this is tied up. And I mean, this is, this is stuff that's hugely convoluted and, and it can be very, very tiring and draining to keep on top of it all and just sort of be, you know, obviously you sort of feel like this is wrong, but it's like, well, what can you do? What, what can a Newcastle fan do? I mean, I, I, know, I know that there will be a very, very, very small minority whose relationship with the club will be fundamentally damaged by this. I mean, it will be. Um, people have come out and said that, but it is a very, very small minority. I don't think fans should be expected to feel like that. But what I would say is that football fans should be aware of the issues. You should be like, well, you know, Jimmy Rubin might be giving all this money to, to food banks in Newcastle, but, you know, he's, he's, he's conversely funding a, a political party and a political campaign that has essentially been the cause of why those food banks were needed in the first place. But now all of a sudden he's hugely popular. Within that particular fan base, because of how he has done that Sports so just, it, 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 in, in full action, yeah, it, it, exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's just the just case of well, he's connected to our football club and hell Half no Fury, like a football fan, his club has been scorned. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. Like, it, it's just yeah. like to see how, like, and, and I mean, like, listen, we're, we're all guilty of it. like, everybody's guilty on it to a degree. You're just you're, irrationally defensive of a club whereby, you know. You know I get the idea of fandom. Fandom is great, but fandom can be terrible as well. And I think you know, sports watching takes advantage of that. You know what manipulates people? You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it's it's designed to do this. So it, it's listen. It's very it's very hard to it's very hard to sort of moralize over supporters or anything mm-hmm. like that because it is difficult. And I don't I don't envy the situation that they're in. But you don't have to defend it at every turn, and you should be aware of what has happened.
2: Mm-hmm. And I guess it feels like it's only going to continue, right? Because you've just spoken it later in terms of how how well it does work for those who, who want it to work in terms of the, uh, the sports washing. Because I can remember when the, when the interest came from the Saudi Arabia fund to buy over Newcastle, and it seemed in the months leading up to it that there was maybe going to be a breaking point where it was too much scrutiny and it maybe wasn't going to go through and it was whether you know the Premier League were going to sign off on it. And there was a lot of criticism and a lot of people speaking out about it. But then it went through. Months later, it seemed no one's really talking about it. And like you said, everyone's talking about the renewed spirit in the city of Newcastle. And you've got fans even wearing, you know, Arab-inspired clothing to games. And you've got some people from ownership group taking squad photos. And everyone's kind of rejoicing and celebrating in this new um new era of the club and the scrutiny and the criticism that came before the ownership went through it, it completely uh disappeared. So it feels like we're not anywhere close to kind of overcoming it or or kind of solving it. And it gets to the point where is there a solution or are we just in this kind of you know environment where we need to accept it in a way. And if you think because it was always the it's obviously well established now, like engaging in these political, economic, or sporting relationship with regressive nations, be it be it Saudi Arabia, Qatar, China, Russia, it obviously isn't helping them progress, or as as much as we would want them to progress in our eyes. And so I'm wondering, then, is there a solution or a new approach where we disengage, and if that is an approach, does that help at all? Is that, you know, an appropriate approach?
0: Yeah, I think, I think that's the key word, isn't it? Disengage, because that's, that's what I want you to do. And it's interesting you mentioned Russia, because obviously Russia hosted the 2018 World Cup. And there was, you know, when we talk about the Russian situation with Ukraine, but that didn't start this year. You know that that, that started with, with the past region was seven or eight years ago, and obviously had yeah, actually longer implications than that. And there'd be people who are much better versed than me, but you know, hosting the World Cup did not do anything for Russia as as a nation to to be progressive. That that's some sort of word we we're comfortable using in this sense because. It, it just doesn't... I mean, you, we always hear that as a defense, We always hear that You know, we're taking, we're taking the World Cup to Qatar, or, you know, we're going to take games to Saudi Arabia. But that's because we, we want to see these nations develop. We want to see more women involved with the game. We want to see greater rights for fans. It's like, well, that's just... That's just sort of nonsense. You know, that, that's just not true. I mean, that's not the reason you're doing, it. you're doing it for money. Just admit that you're doing it for money. Because there is... <laughs> those things don't work. These sort of, sort of ideal idealistic viewpoints don't happen in in the sort of cold hard reality of things. And it's really interesting as well because the Manchester City takeover happened in what 2008? Two I mean I was I, mean, I was a bit too young to fully, you know to fully understand that. I was still in school, but you kind of think back to that time and there certainly wasn't the level of I would say fedora is probably the wrong word to use, but that level of kind of pushback against that idea of a nation state coming in with, with a human rights right record like, like the, the Arab Emirates, like Dubai, Abu Dhabi, coming in taking over a club, it didn't really seem like there was, certainly compared to, to what it has been in the years since, like there was this big, oh, this, this is something that we should be concerned about, whereas now there's definitely a much, a much greater awareness, I think, of, of, the, of these things happening, and obviously that's, that's peaked with what's happening in, in Qatar, with the Qatar World Cup, and... There is also an argument that you can make the bias like oh the guitar world cups trying to normalize guitar and everything else, but what that has done is it has put the spotlight on guitar for the past 10, 11, 12 years, and all this stuff is now getting exposed, whereby it might not have really been afforded the same level of exposure had they not have been hosting a World Cup. But because they are putting themselves center stage. That, that is the that, that is the sort of spotlight that's shared in these things and there's another example here which is a much lower profile, but it's also quite relevant to sort of current current events that's that's Rwanda and Rwanda has a dictatorship Rwanda has human rights abuses by its government which with your on record as the u k is being concerned about you also have then, the u k trying to deport um, migrants to Rwanda and the, the irony of all this is that Arsenal and PSG have a 10 million a year sponsorship um, with the Rwandan Tourist Board, is it Rwanda, encouraging people to go to Rwanda, whereby you actually have this dictatorship in case where you have people who are, who are suppressed. And I I did an interview with Karim Karimba um, earlier this year for the mirror about her dad, Paul Riesenbey, who had been uh, sort of arrested and tamed illegally. In Rwanda, and the, the, the film Hotel Rwanda was based on his actions uh, during the Rwandan Civil War of, of, and the, the genocide that went on there, and the sort of terrible history that they've had and they've had to endure. You have a government now that are doing all that, and yet are just sort of casually normalizing themselves by putting Visit Rwanda on Arsenal shirts, national training gear, and PSG shirts. So just think, I mean, even that that's a different example because that's that's not you know, that's not Qatar, that's not Saudi Arabia, that's, that's not a state that has almost endless wealth. I mean, this is one of the most, I think it's the 20th most impoverished nation in the world. Yet yeah, they're given 10 million a year to these clubs who are owned by billionaires. And it's it's such a it's such a strange thing. I and mean, I know there is an argument that you know it's trying to promote their own tourist board, promote their own economy. And yet that, that is true, but they they renewed the deals during COVID times whenever there was no international travel. And there's no evidence that, that that actually will come to pass whereby it does push the economy long-term and makes that investment worthwhile. But what it definitely does do is that it normalizes Rwanda and, and the sort of exposure that, it, that that nation gets and its government get within a sort of mainstream sporting normality. So that's, that's, that's another angle of this. But listen, there's so, there's so many things we can say about this. But one thing that, that I'm, not, I'm not sure if there's something to be hopeful about, but, but the situation with Russia this year and the subsequent sort of breaking in ties between um, the British government, I, I guess you can guess. You can say that the British government and, and a lot of Russian cryptocrats and oligarchs have seen Roman Abramovich obviously have to, have to sell Chelsea, have, have to leave the club know Roman Abramovich actually said this, whenever he, he bought Chelsea, he's like, like, well, why have, you come to, why have you come to London? Why have you bought a club? Okay, so, you know, people don't talk about you. You know, pe- people, people, don't really, people aren't really interested in, in who you are or what you've done, but you've got a lot of money, uh, you're investing in a club, and you're keeping a lot of people very happy. And that was it. That, that, that was essentially what happened for two decades. And that was, that was such a... That was almost like a masterclass in sports washing because people weren't even aware it was sports washing. You know, Roman Abramovich, she's not, you know, if anybody had said there was a link between Abramovich and Vladimir Putin in any way, you know, that, that, you would have been libeled. You would have been subject to, to libel cases if you had printed that. Yeah, the British government then this year actually confirmed that. They, they said that themselves, that there was really a, a, you know, an indisputable link between the two. So now, now you can report that. Now you can say those things. And now he, he wasn't able to run Chelsea Football Club anymore. But there, nothing had actually changed with Abramovich. I, I mean, Abramovich didn't want the war. You know, he's, a, he's a huge loser of this situation. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't want any of this. But because, because of the sort of geopolitical shift that there's been, that, that sort of relationship between Abramovich and British football had to be cut off. Maybe that will happen to Saudi Arabia. Maybe it will happen, happen with any of these other nations that we have been talking about. It, it it's very much it's very much dependent on on sort of current current situation and it isn't consistent at all.
1: Exactly, you know, there,
0: there is there there is no consistency here. It's just it's just the whim of whoever is in power and what benefits them at that particular time.
1: No, yeah, exactly. I think that's I think and that's what I react to is 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 the blatant hypocrisy. And I understand I totally recognize and you and you mentioned that briefly. It is hard to stay equally engaged. It's it's impossible. To say equally engaged in every in every issue, and at a point there will be come a become a a what right? Well, you don't you care about that? What about this? And what about that? So I, you take on a massive task in, in many ways. Also, the Abramovich disconnect then from Chelsea can be seen as as a progress, while at the same time months ahead, I've had Saudi Aramco be engaged with Newcastle. So it is it is tough, but it is it is what I started with. It's it's the selective morality, right? That is of Arsenal collecting sponsorship money from visit Rwanda while at the same time saying black lives matter or the, not supporting us. with the yoga Muslims, it's uh, uh, you can extend it to the NBA and Hong Kong, th- those all issues. So it's, it's tough because I understand you are put under scrutiny. You cannot be equally engaged, but then it comes for me to a point where are you better off not doing it at all? Because these clubs it's it's so blatant to us when manchester city have the rainbow flag behind their profile on their twitter and it's on all their profiles except the one they have in the in the the muslim world because the way it is is homosexuality is is illegal there it just it becomes problematic what i cannot get my head around and i think it will be tough for us to do so is is how how it is able to carry on and if there isn't any way of, of, of reversing it. And it, it does tie into what we have discussed in terms of money being the prevailing objective. Um, but it's, it's tough and it's something that's hard for us to solve in this moment of time. But it's an interesting discussion to have because at what point does it start and what point does it end?
0: Yeah, uh, it's, it's football clubs, football leagues, football organizations, or all businesses. Like it, it, we, we talk about this, we talk about this these sort of, clubs and sports we sort of think of it in our heads oh this is separate this sort of belongs to us like it belongs to everyone and of course on one hand on one hand that, that's partially true but <laughs> in more in more realistic terms it's not because the these are brands who will say what they think will resonate with people what they think will will increase their own revenue streams what they think will allow them to grow as a business and as a brand i mean i don't i don't like using those words but you know, like I don't, I don't, I don't think Manchester City are a brand, or Barcelona are a brand. But the way that people are run the club, they think like that because they have to think like that. And that's their job. And you know, they'll market themselves to a Western audience. You know, we're 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 LGBT plus friendly. You know, we're we're incredibly progressive. We're you know, we we want we want everybody to so feel welcome. We want you know. And then the other hand, it's like, well, yeah, but you're, you're you're literally run by a regime who doesn't afford those exact same rights to to its own citizens. In fact, not only that, but if it actively actively doesn't do that. You know, it, it's actively not doing that. So there's that huge contradiction there, and that's true, that's true throughout football. I don't I don't want to pick on Manchester City because you know, as you said. You know, if you pick on one step faster, but they go, like, oh, "But what about this? What about that?" We sort of get drawn, and all this sort of information that it's like, "Yeah, but all these things aren't good." But there's only so many things you can say at one time. But it is true. It is true that that they're, they're not the only club who're like this. You know, we even we can even maybe look at some of the, the broadcasters for the Premier League. Who will say, "You know, they promote these messages," and, it, and it's good of them to promote the messages. I think. I mean, I, I think this is great. that these messages are getting sort of airtime and the exposure on one hand of course of course that's true I mean that it's, it's important but then again the flip side of that is then they'll be they'll be promoting the fact that these that these people have come into these clubs and just spending a lot of money without being like well actually what they represent is the exact opposite of what you're saying should be promoted the messages that you're trying to get across and there's that contradiction It's that constant contradiction that's at the heart of the sport the heart of the clubs the heart of the coverage of the sport the heart of everything and it is so difficult to, it's so difficult to really articulate it properly, isn't it? I for any of us, because there's always there's always more word that you can say, and there's always more context, there's always more nuance, and it's just it's just one of those things that it's incredibly difficult to to, to contextualise in a, in a better way than that. But I think that we just have to, you know, I think it's important to continue to be aware of all, this, all these, all these issues, and to be aware of the contradictions that are there, and to accept as well that you know these things work. Sports washing does work. Um, sadly, I think, I, think it's, I think it's true that it works, but on the other hand there, there is, as I said, a greater pushback against it than ever before and that, that sort of, that's sort of the, the dynamic that it creates, so it'll be interesting to see what exactly will happen to here. but as I said the, these things are volatile, situations can be volatile, you know, things can change quite quickly, you know, nobody, nobody would have thought in January that Roman Abramovich would not be the owner of Chelsea Football Club by March, yet by March that idea had been totally normalised so these these things do move quickly. World events change quickly, and the ball will forever be getting caught up in them and being mad and what's what's going on outside of it.
2: Mm-hmm. I guess one of the questions also is if there's too much onus being put on you know athletes, players, managers to kind of stand up or you know answer to these kind of political and moral dilemmas. And I mean, you look at. Pep Guardiola, who seems to be grilled the most about Man City's ownership and the, the fraudulent sponsorship um allegations. You look at Eddie Howe, Ed, Eddie Howe, who's grilled, you know, frequently about Newcastle's ownership. And like you say, that Boris Johnson's encouraging the Premier League for that ownership to go through. You then look at the Russian money that has infiltrated the London economy and the conservatory part in the UK but it seems to be Chelsea that gets the most heat for having Ibrahimovic as their owner. Um, You know, Arsenal coming under heat and PSG for the visit to Rwanda, but then the UK government paying the Rwanda government millions of pounds to take on refugees. So it's almost, you know, it's football, it's getting all the heat and particularly the players and the managers when it's loads above them, the owners, the politicians, the CEOs that are making the decisions and I'm just wondering, you know, how fair that is and how you get around that. I
0: Well, in terms of fairness, I think the questions are fair. I think, I think whenever Eddie Howe became a Newcastle manager, he knew who he was going to be working for. He knew he knew the source of the funds. He knew exactly what he was walking into. And he's getting the benefits of that. So if you're, I mean, if, if that's your employer and you're knowingly aware of it and you're knowingly benefiting from it, it's the same with Pep Guardiola Manchester City, the same... Same elsewhere. You should be, you're the public face of the club. I mean, that's part of your job. You should be answerable. And of course, in an ideal world, you would have the people who are actually the CEOs or the people who are involved um, structurally with these deals answering for themselves, but they won't do that. They will only ever give interviews whenever it's a, essentially a, a, a PR release, you know, comfortable questions, you know. They're, they're, they're not going to get driving because they don't have to, but these guys are the public facing the public image of the club. What I would say about Pep Guardiola is that Pep Guardiola has obviously been a uh, sort of staunch advocate of Catalonia and the situation of Catalan I suppose, nationalism, potential separatism from Spain. Uh, and he has spoken of historic wrongs, um, even contemporary wrongs, you could argue. Yet, whenever, whenever he's pressed on, on the, the, the people he works for and what they do to their people, to their population, he doesn't he doesn't seem to have the same concerns but that for me is an issue that's a that that's a that's a valid that's a valid point to, to sort of bring up and to speak about and probably even more blatantly was Xavi Hernandez who obviously retired uh from Korea in Qatar and became a manager in Qatar before going back to Boswell this year and he um he had a good time in Qatar he won the he won the national lottery um which was um very transparently <laughs> conducted and he gave a series of interviews whereby he said how everybody loves living in Qatar, how great a life it was, how much better it was than living in Europe, how the Qatari government was better for its people than the Spanish government were for its people. Now, I'm not saying that the Spanish government is perfect and I'm not saying that, you know, everybody can't their own opinions, but the Spanish government is a democracy you know the Catalan Catalan people are not are not in any way suppressed by the Spanish government. I mean that, 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 in, in this current day and age to say something like that is, is blatantly ludicrous. You know it's it's, it's incorrect. Um, and what he is doing is exactly what the Qatari government would love him to do it, it, it's it's amazing PR. I mean, that, that is that is exactly what they want they they couldn't they couldn't have asked for him to give a better quote they just couldn't you know they couldn't have, they couldn't have written it better themselves because that, that's the image that a lot of these states want to give off you know if, if any of us were to go over to Qatar or to Abu Dhabi or, or wherever else you would be treated um incredibly well because you're from Western Europe because you're white because you you're seen to have A certain level of influence, certain level of wealth. Whereas if you're from South Asia, you know, you you look at you look at the reports of the number of deaths of South Asian migrants within Qatar and the build up to the World Cup. It's just unexplained. You know, living in living in conditions, slave labour. I mean, it's to think about it. It's actually quite harrowing what 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 goes on and the fact that. Your experience as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as somebody from the Western world in one of those countries is, is, is the polar opposite, and, and systematically so, with somebody who's from South Asia. And that, that's a huge problem. And that, that's, that's when it becomes problematic when you have somebody like Shaki Kumo instead. He's one of these Paris huge influence. He's one of the greatest footballers of all time. I don't, I don't think anybody would dispute that. He's obviously incredibly intelligent, he's very articulate. He's now kind of the manager of Barcelona. Um, he could become a very successful manager, let, let's see. But to come out with that, that, that was I mean, I mean that that happened years ago and I still haven't fully really gotten over it. I don't, I don't think any any anybody at that level could be compared to what he said on that issue on the this sort of system of governance and everything mm-hmm. else to, to go into that detail. Um but do you so think yeah, I think it's important
1: that they're asked on it. But do you think I've always wondered that. Do you think they think that? Or is it because as if we go s- I don't want to go too psychologically here, but as humans, we always have to negotiate with ourselves. This sort of, you know, I'm a good person, right? So we have to negotiate that. And what you're clearly emphasizing here, and which is clear to all of us is, you know, it is, he's, if you are for colonial you're running counter to what you've said before, you know, and you don't want to be, the last thing you want to be seen as is a hypocrite or to stand for two opposing views. But when they, and obviously you, Can't account for what they think, but I'm always wondering if they actually think that, or is it some sort of denial or uh, a compartmentalization of thoughts? So I'm just wondering what if they actually think that or not. But I don't know. You can't account for that, but I wonder what. Be curious to see what your theory would be. Uh,
0: Yeah, it is. It is curious. I don't. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to be picking on um, Barcelona alumni. Or managers or stock no. players, but, but Lionel Messi is another fantastic example. It's just because of what's happened recently. I mean, he, listen, he moved to Qatar. He moved to he moved to, Qatar, he moved to PSG <laughs> or uh, run by Qatar um, ahead of the World Cup. And that, that's that's a PR move in itself. But fine, you get that. I mean, that's that's, that's a football transfer. But then he he took on um, a, a role for the Saudi Arabia Saudi Arabia Tourism Board uh, in May. You know, which is obviously going to earn him millions and millions and millions of euros or, or, or whatever. Um, make him a lot richer than he already is. I mean, this is this is the richest footballer in the world. This is somebody who's got enough money to sustain several generations without ever having to make any more money. I mean, that's that's the level of wealth that he has. It, it it's unthinkable. I mean, like, the amount of wealth that he has is actually unthinkable to any any you know any anyone else really. Yet he still thought, you know, I'm going to I want to advertise for Saudi Saudi movie. I want to promote the country. You know, that, that's that's a that's a business move by me that I think is a good idea. And I was trying, I I was trying to sort of think in what in what world like what, what was his thought process behind that? Because it doesn't make a difference to his wealth. You know, it, it doesn't like it. It's money that will that will likely never be used, never be touched, certainly not by him personally. Yeah. You kind of think, does it tarnish his image? I mean, it it probably should, but will it actually have any real impact? Probably not. And then you get you get you get to that point, where it's like, well, you know, what, what really matters anymore? And you know, don't Messi, like, somebody who, who's um, invested a lot of money in, in a lot of very worthwhile causes, a lot of charities and everything else, and that, all that stuff's very admirable, of course it is, but but that's, that's a separate topic that doesn't explain why he's doing this. It doesn't, you know, I, I, was, I just can't, I can't come up with a satisfactory answer for that. Maybe, maybe, like, I mean, I, I, I briefly worked, and I, I must stress, at a very low level of um, financial services before I moved into football journalism. And I was aware that people within that, within that sort of field, like clients, I was like, the more money that people have, the more obsessed by it they become. In terms of the end of the day, like, we've well, you know, we, we built this, like this is ours, and like, the bigger it gets, the more you think about it. It's like a natural thought process in a way, and you become more protective of it, you become more worried about it, and you just become obsessed by it. And I kind of think, is that, is that something that comes into play with, even, even at this sort of totally different stratospheric level of, of, of wealth? It's like, well, you know, earning more money, I mean, of course you should earn more money, this is an option you can make more money. You know, and in your head, maybe you're, maybe you sort of sort of justify it, like, you know, but this is going to be for my children and my grandchildren, even though, even though, like, it doesn't really make a difference at all, but you sort of think like that, you sort of, you know, maybe you just become into this way of thinking where, where just more money is a good thing and that's that pretty much is all, all you're concerned about because, if, if Messi's advertising Saudi Arabia, the reality is it's probably not going to make any difference to anybody. It's probably not going to persuade more people to go there, but what it does do is it normalizes Saudi Arabia being a, it's as it's, it's being a, a possible destination. is being being just a normal nation, but it's not a normal nation, and that's that's what you've got to keep stressing. And I guess maybe when you just get to a certain level of wealth, you you just think differently, and maybe maybe everyone else just can't can't understand it because we we're not walking in their shoes. We don't know how it feels like. I don't feel sorry for them, but of course not. But but at the same time, maybe maybe they just live in a almost like in a in, in a fantasy world, whereby they think this is important when. It's just not mm-hmm. and i i don't know if i can i don't know if that's something that you can blame them for or, or sort of criticize them for but it's certainly it's certainly stuff that should be highlighted and should be should be questioned i think i mean those, those are entirely legitimate questions that they should be answerable for
2: yeah absolutely colin i want to get your your take or your opinion on there seems to be this kind of new environment and it's, you know, particularly a correlation between politics and sport in the UK especially, where there's this kind of increasing inequality between capital, labour, um, you know, owners, workers, owners, fans of football clubs, um, you know, where money prevails all. Uh, there's a real lack of accountability and morality is being obscured. And to the point where mistakes that would have previously driven out politicians or owners are now being brushed aside and, and, you know, and aren't as effective anymore. And you you look at, you know, Boris Johnson being the prime example, you look in a football context with the Glazers. I mean, the way they're running Man United and continue taking out dividends, the way the Super League came together and collapsed. And although there was a kind of outrage, there wasn't any changes in the infrastructure or ownership or any real kind of you know, changes from the protest and it's just, it's wondering how this environment came about um, and and where does it go from here, sort of?
0: Yeah, um, I suppose this disability example is really, really strong because I was just gonna say that supporters are by and large partless. I mean, without, there's, there's very little, something. You know, also, obviously, on, a, on an individual level, it, there's, there's, not, there's no impact you can make, but maybe as a collective, there's a chance that you might make a small change, but it's really interesting because it's that moment was the fact when fans actually felt, yeah, we've, we're the ones who've got the power here. We can, we can sort of come in and, and, and stop these bad things from happening, from developing. And felt like it felt like that felt like that, was, that was the moment that you had to seize it for meaningful change that was you know you had the experiment like right this is this is whenever uh, the structure of clubs to change whereby fans get a voice and i'm not saying fans need to own the club that no, nobody was ever advocating that but to have a voice to have a say in what goes on to have a stake they don't have any of that you know these these owners aren't accountable whatsoever you know they stage manage videos if, if even if, if we're lucky a lot of the time and what what happened in the Super League? Well, the Super League didn't happen. Fans said, no, we don't want that. And what's actually subsequently happened is that UEFA have just introduced changes to the Champions League, to Europa League, whatever else. that are essentially what the Super League was doing. The only, the only difference is that there's still some level of meritocracy in qualifying, but even that's been watered down because they thought, you know, they, 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 if you've got this coefficient of this ranking, you, you, you can still qualify anyway, even if you have a terrible campaign. So it's like even even if you're a mass total field, you, you'll still get in if you're rich. So, so that, that's what that does. UEFA have, have just taken the elements of the Super League and just packaged it up in a more palatable way because UEFA aren't new. It wasn't a PR disaster. They did it very gradually with what they brought in. They sort of demanded a little bit more and then scaled it back. But there's going to be more football games than ever, more meaningless football games than ever, more money being given towards the, the biggest clubs in Europe. And what, what has actually changed at a club level? What has changed for fans? I mean, maybe, maybe Manchester United fans might disagree a little bit because maybe, maybe they'll feel like there's a sense from their owners that you know, they finally got them to the fans for them. They got They got sit down with them in that sense. You know, there was some sort of concession. But these are these are the most small scale, meaningless concessions there are. I mean, like that Manchester United are a great example because the glazers are almost like the, the sort of I suppose we say vulture capitalists who just sort of come in, buy the debt, buy the club essentially, with, with their own money, plunge them into debt and and just aren't accountable at all. Let that stadium sort of decay, let that let, let standards slip. But we're not gonna intervene at all, just let our just let our business people run the club, you know, that's essentially what's happened. And, and just, you you know, see accountability in football. You're talking about you know that sort of leverage buyout that happened to Burnley. Um, and when did they takeover go through? Was it a year ago that they, they take over, so maybe slightly more? And so that's so that's happened 15 years after the Glazers take over, exactly the same thing, just on a much smaller scale. And now Burnley find themselves in potential financial Armageddon in the next year because they've got these incredible debts that so they need to pay back to their owners who, who bought the club and now they've been relegated and they do not have the, the income to pay it off. So these these structures haven't been rectified to correct that. Within 15 years, it hasn't changed. And you, you always see these football league clubs who are being bought over by owners who should be absolutely nowhere near a club. They should not have that responsibility. The most recent example was um, Birmingham City and this guy Lawrence Bassini. I'm I'm guessing most people haven't. I haven't heard of him or aren't familiar with his background, but Watford, Watford fans will be familiar with him because of how he ran the club. He ran the club disastrously. He, he's put several businesses out of business. He, his, his, if you look at the track record of his career, it is one of ruin, const, 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 constant ruin, constant mismanagement, constant PR disaster passes. Yeah, this is somebody who's on the verge of buying a football club again. And it's just like, what, like, I mean, you keep hearing these, you know, what it fit and proper owner tests? And, like, what, what are the tests? You know, and, and then you think, well, we're, we're going back to Newcastle United and the Saudi Arabian takeover, and we've been told that the PIS nothing to do with Saudi Arabia. You know, they just just repeat the line, Just just repeat that line again and again. And that, that's all you need to do. Just wait for it to, just wait, just wait to normalise it, and then move on. And then sort of, like, to hell with the consequences. And obviously, obviously, that's a, that's a different type of in the football league. Derby County have been relegated to League One, and the uh, sort of ownership struggles that they've had. They, they, these clubs have been run just so, so badly, and they, they've been run like a bad business. But the thing is, a football club, it is a business on one hand, but, but it's also a community institution, you know what I mean? They, this is something that means a lot to a lot of people. It's very important for these towns and cities, yet... That, that's why there needs to be greater accountability, greater checks. We've seen what happened to Bury, Batman and Macclesfield and this other clubs are, are on the brink, that's something similar happening it just feels like there needs to be structural reforms in football whereby fans, fans have a say but also the people who ultimately are running the club are accountable for what they're doing, they have to explain exactly what it is they're doing, why they're doing it and if things do go wrong then they have to bear the full responsibility for that. And none of those things happening at the minute, but all of those things need to happen if the fall not to eat itself.
2: Mm-hmm. It's, you mentioned there the, the fit and proper tests and how the, the Glazier takeover was 15 years ago and still nothing had really changed in that time to then the Burnley leverage buyout. And, you know, there's been these token gestures reforms, the fit and proper test being one of them. But like you said, if a if a consortium can come in and buy Burnley, and, and I, I, you know buy them with their own money and with debt, and a, to a point where if they get relegated, they then they repay the loan back of sixty million, which is going to put them in a re, you know financially you know difficult position. And then if you look, you touched on the you know Lawrence Bassini coming in, who's like you said a history of you know failure in business and bankruptcy on the verge of securing shares in Birmingham City. And from what I read, it's only if he gets approved for a £10 million loan because he actually doesn't have the money to buy it. So he needs to take out debt to get his shares. And then you mentioned the the Newcastle takeover. And you're sitting wondering if... If a several times declared bankrupt businessman who you could, you know, essentially label as a crook, can buy a club. If a state that outlaws homosexuality can buy a club, then... Who are the fit and proper tests meant to s- prevent buying clubs, you
0: know? Yeah, it's it's insane. Uh, and, and I don't I don't have I don't have an answer. I mean, it, no, but what how you just described that is is the exact, precise reality. Yeah, if you were to describe that to somebody who doesn't not even who doesn't follow football, but who isn't who isn't really you know doesn't doesn't really go in depth on these things, and it's totally understandable because it's, it's, it's very depressing to, try to talk about it and think about it and to read about it. But I just think you're right. This is this is just madness. It's it's inexplicable, and it's and it's this thing as well where, we, where at the start of the podcast we, we talked about a bit about Barcelona and their debt. In Barcelona, we're allowed to run up to those huge debts. And it was almost like normal, and so, you know, and then it only became sort of very annoyed, like, oh, wait, this is actually serious. Like guess could actually be a serious situation for the club because you, know, you read all these financial statements and thinking these clubs are 200 million points in debt, 500 million points in debt, a billion points in debt, you know, And know, it almost gets to the point where it's like you, know, you sort of just completely lose interest in what any of this means, like, well, what, what does debt even mean? You know what I mean? Like, it, yeah, exactly. It, it sort of loses all meaning. It's sort of it's like this sort of this sort of banker talk, this finance talk, and it's almost like it, they they deliberately try to, to convolute it. They deliberately try to make it needlessly complicated so that people tune out of it and just don't engage with it. Which is which is what a lot of these people want. A lot of the a lot of people run the club Don't want you to engage with it, and it's just this. Um, it's it's very it's very difficult it's very difficult to explain who who wouldn't be allowed to run a club. It's a good question, and um, you just you do feel you do feel sorry for fans because at the end of the day, you look at that Birmingham City situation. Birmingham City, you know, one of one of the biggest cities in, in the UK, a huge football club, a club who, who struggled a little bit yeah in the past decade or so. Of course they have, but it's never it's never really never really been a you know a completely lost cause, and, and then you see... This guy's coming in and there's just nothing you can do about it you know, it's, it's just nothing. It's like you know the, the, the EFL or whoever' is just going to just gonna take it off and take a box because they've got this sort of income coming in straight away, and that's it and as you said it's just it's just funded on debt by somebody who's a who's got a history of being entirely unreliable entirely cha- chaotic and everything that goes with it so that's, the answer, isn't
1: That's where you come in as a journalist and as, as one of the, the last guards, so to speak, to report and inform uh, fans uh, on these issues. Um, Colin, we've really enjoyed having you on. We've ta- you had shared some great insight with us for the last hour, which we are always greatly appreciative of. And also helping to make sense of our own thoughts, because the questions we ask you... We will discuss, and we can make sense. And so, what better way than to 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 talk with you about it, who 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 is deeply engaged with these with these with these matters? So, thanks so much for for being on, Colin. Um, we really really appreciate that.
0: No, thanks, thanks to both of you for your time. And really, I should talk about and this. Is just one final point is that this is something that you know, this is something that in the football like, ownership, football structure, everything else. It's always, there's always been that. There's always been this sort of murky sort of underbelly to it but i think i think in the past for the 10 10 years or so this it, it, all this stuff has increased so much and it just shows you it just shows you what football is um in terms of its importance in the world it, it, i would say football sort of fans reflect society but football clubs also reflect society in, in a different sense they, they you know, they reflected everything that goes on both, both good and, and quite frequently bad too so it's um it's, it's, one of, it's one of those, those aspects for, for sort of football journalism that you probably didn't really have to delve into quite so much in days gone by. And now it's, a, it's like a fundamental part of the sport, but listen, it's been really nice talking to you both about it. Um, and hopefully hopefully there's a bit of a brighter future in some of the issues that we discussed.
1: Absolutely. We could go on for it for, for oh, hours yeah. about this. It's a, it's a tricky, tricky terrain to, to navigate, but yeah, uh, we will one by one, we will, we will figure it out. So maybe we have you back on at a later time and, and maybe we can be updated on either the bad or, or good events that have stemmed from, from, these, uh, from, these, uh, from these areas. Thank you, Colin.
0: Thank you so much, guys.
1: Thanks for listening to BroPod. Uh, It was a delight and uh, thank you for being with us the entire way. It's a topic, as said, we are looking forward to discuss further and uh, hopefully we can hear some feedback from you guys as well. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe, uh, like or share. We always appreciate that um, as we uh, continue down this, this road of exploration together, the
0: married man, Kieran and myself. For now, have a good one.